new faces in Cabinet. I feel very humbled. Don't ask me the hard questions, it's my first day on the job. And recapping election 2020. Let's have a party, thank you. One News Inside Parliament. Welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we have been covering on One News. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Benedict Collins. And welcome back to our podcast. We had to take a little bit of a break because none of us were in the same city at the same time. But it's really nice to have you guys back with us again to start the new term afresh if you like, and we've got a lot to go over. We've got quite a few weeks of highlights uh, to to share with you, so mm, it should be good. It's feeling good to be back, actually. It's really nice to be back. We are also in a new studio space as well, Um, so if it's looking and and sounding a tiny bit different, um, we'll get used to the space, I'm sure, eventually. So shall we start off at the top, really, these ministerial allocations that have been handed out Uh, the Prime Minister making that announcement, dishing out who's going to be in charge of what and who's going to be the Minister of what and who's going to be in her Cabinet and also, interestingly, who isn't. So for you guys, what were the big moments, what were the big takeaways? I think there were so many big moments and um, just sitting there in the Beehive Theatrette, I think we were all just, it was sort of one wow after the other really, just hearing the names in their portfolios, it was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, wow, wow, Um, because there were just so many new switch ups. Um, and so a big one, of course, was Nanaya Mahuta mm. taking on that foreign affairs portfolio, um, such a big coveted role. And, you know, prior to the announcement, there were some names swirling around, but hers wasn't one of them. Nope. And so I think everybody saw that as a big surprise. Um, and, you know, Ardern herself mentioned that um, Nanaya Mahuta is the fe- first female in New Zealand history to ever hold that portfolio. So huge feat there for her. Yeah, really big. And I think another surprise was Andrew Little getting health. I think when you're sort of speculating on it, you've got a bit of a jigsaw and you're working out, well, if this person gets this, then you can give this person that, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think uh, many people had picked those two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to go into there, which meant that other things and other flow-on effects. The other thing as well, new deputy Grant Prime Robertson Minister and yeah. Grant Robertson. So Calvin David's, Davis said... No, thank you. I will step aside, uh, leaving the dream team, as they were labelled, of Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson at the top. What did you make of things? Yeah, I wasn't too surprised to see that um, to see that Calvin didn't want to be the the deputy PM. Um, you know, th- thrives um, as he puts it himself. I think thrives on the marae and doesn't particularly enjoy. Uh, the debating chamber and stuff like that, where he would have had more exposure, you'd assume, um, as deputy as deputy prime minister. So yeah, wasn't terribly surprised by that. One thing I thought interesting: um, Phil Twyford outside of um, cabinet. Um, you know, this is the guy who, who obviously you know is taking or being held accountable for the Kiwi Build kind of disaster. But Jacinda stuck with him, you know, last term, and you know he was promoted up the ranks of the Labour Party list to number four for the election, and then, you know, sort of kicked out of cabinet um, as soon as they come back. And Jenny Salisa is another one who didn't make it in either. Yeah, at so all. Yeah. People punished. So he's a minister outside cabinet, right? Yeah, yeah, and she yeah. wasn't a minister. She hasn't been named as a minister. Yeah, that one was quite brutal, Jenny Salisa, really, because she hadn't done any sort of major public flops, but there was certainly, you know, um, a lacklustre um, when it came to the delivery around the vaping 
standards and rules which she was in charge of I thought um, you know the, there was delay after delay and sort of getting those standards out there and um, also just in a few media stand-ups to um, she was competent but I do think there was um, certainly a few chinks there in the armor that came through especially when you're interviewing ministers you kind of pick up on subtleties and things like that so I wasn't too surprised to see her out but it does take the number of Pacific um, ministers down to four, whereby they had five last time round. There were also a lot of new faces making it in. Um, Dr. Aisha Verrill, um, straight into cabinet. Yeah, been in, been an MP, not even officially sworn in yet. Um, been around the place for two weeks and suddenly welcome to the cabinet table. Uh, the prime minister's argument was that if you had a doctor specialising in. in um, Diseases, yeah, that we're that we're dealing with, you'd be silly not to, but uh, but it does seem pretty swift, brutal, straight into cabinet. Like you do, I I think it's not like a normal job, and I think that's for anyone who's not really involved in politics. This place is weird. It's like a church. There's lots of unwritten rules. There's lots of ways that things are done. You have to learn the select committee systems. You have to learn. how things operate. Things you can rhythms. and can't say. Right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I just think that to bring someone in, uh, it's kind of like, hey, you're a, th- well, it's not third former these days, but I'll, I'll use that analogy because I'm old. But the, you know, it's like, hey, you're third form and now welcome to being a prefect. Like it's, it's tough. And she's going to have to make sure that she's got a lot of support and cushioning around her. Obviously, a very competent person, but it's, it, you've got to learn the rhythms of politics around here and you've got to walk before you can run in this place sometimes. Yeah, and I think they'll certainly be aware of having that support around those ministers. They learnt last term early on that if you don't have that support there, there will be problems. Of course, we saw that with Mika Whaiteri, who also made her come back um, this term um, back as a minister. Um, So uh, a a good um, step back into the fold for her. Um, I just want to go back and talk a little bit about... um, Calvin Davis um, and his decision not to um, take on that Deputy Prime Minister role, yes, it wasn't a surprise. I do think, though, he is very much in his forte when he is in those ministerial positions, very capable minister, and staying on in corrections is a good thing because he has been doing well to get that um, prison population down, Um, so it's good that he's held on to that. But also hugely interesting, I think, for him to take on the Minister of Children um, role, which includes Oranga Tamariki, and they've had huge issues there. Um, so to have a Māori in that position is significant. And um, for someone of Calvin's capability, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does in that space. Nanaya Mahuta as well, I forgot to mention in terms of her credentials, um, because there were you know some questions around that, but she was also Associate Trade under David Parker last time, so she has, you know, been in that um, sector, in that sphere for some time um, in the last term, and so it's good to see um, her getting promoted up this time round. In terms of the duo for Grant and um, Jacinda, they always remind me of Helen Clark and Michael Cullen, you know, the Prime Prime Minister and her Finance Minister slash Deputy, and so it, it would have been it would have been a duo that everyone would have expected, and so I think it was 
I think it's a good thing that um, Calvin made way for that to happen. They've obviously been very close for a very long time. I remember even when Jacinda took over the leadership that he was right there with her. And I even, because I remember doing a story for Seven Sharp at the time, so I was looking for the subtleties. And he was there sort of whispering things into her ear at her first big press conference, which she didn't need. But, you know, it just showed the sort of, uh, that sort of relationship that they had and that he felt like, you know, there was that protectionism there from him as well. And he sort of mentioned that in his comments this week that he's very much there to support her. Um, so, yeah, tight duo, and I think it's going to be good. Yeah, and I think traditionally it always has been the deputy leader of the party who has become the deputy prime minister. I think that, you know, forever it's been that way. But I think Labour was at pains to point out the different role that Calvin will take being the deputy looking after some of those um, junior MPs in his role as deputy leader of the Labour Party and though his his skill set marrying up very nicely with that but perhaps not the one that we see in the public domain which of course is that in the debating chamber fronting the media, things like that which is a much more natural and obvious fit for Grant Robertson. Should we go through a, a few more of those names? Um, Porter Kid, Williams. Porter Williams. Mm. Police, you um, did an interview with her the other day, Mikey. What did you... Yeah, I interviewed her the other day. Well, she didn't want to um, uh, s- l- l- use the word um, systemic racism um, for for describing, uh, you know, that there was that in, within the police, um, which is interesting, but that's always the sort of, you know, stock standard question that you ask a new incoming minister in those types of portfolios, um, which do struggle with those things. And um, so she didn't want to put the label on it. I didn't really feel like it was sort of, here or there really because I think that you can see that her focus and determination and switching all of that around is absolutely there. Um, so it's a big challenge for her because she only came in last, you know, as a minister last term and she didn't have a big sort of portfolio that, you know, was too difficult. I don't think police will be too difficult for her though because um, we obviously had Stuart Nash sort of usher in all of those new recruits and get the ball rolling their last term um, and so I wouldn't see too much difficulty but it will a big, be a big step up um, in that ministerial role for her. And a challenging portfolio at this time I think in, in some ways as well. With Another, the gun reforms? Yeah with the gun reforms and I think you know a few things like that that will be that will be big chunky things for the police minister to deal with but Kitty Allen is another person mm. who's come in. She only was um, came in in 2017. She's now the Conservation Minister. Of course, that gap left by Eugenie Sage um, because the Greens will only now have two uh, the two co-leaders in that outside in of spots. cabinet. Yeah, yep, both outside of cabinet. But Madame Davidson and James Shaw getting those as well, and that was what they were able to negotiate with what they brought to the table. With the Prime Minister. What did you guys make of that? Because we we also saw over the weekend the Greens and um, Labour <laughs> announcing their buddy ship. Yeah, it was, it was so different compared to like the last election campaign where you had sort of Winston, you know, negotiate and you had just weeks of sort of tension and, you know, we we're all camped out in the bottom of Bowen House for, for weeks sort of waiting to hear what Winston had to say and here, here it was kind of like oh yeah well we'll trot over and have a chat with um, 
Jacinda doing it sometimes so the Greens every day would kind of walk past them or, or they'd walk past us and you know, just give us a quick comment and then do a little stand up on the way back and say very little about nothing um, so it was quite sort of a low key kind of negotiation right but I mean Labour was just in such a powerful position Greens didn't have a huge amount um, of bargaining power but it, it was it is kind of fascinating isn't it watching those those former Green MPs co-leader like uh, Russell Norman you know just come out and s- putting the boot into them for signing up in this um, cooperation, saying they're just going to end up being a lapdog um, yeah, to the government, they're not going to be able to criticise them, and, and the Greens say, "I oh, don't know, that's not true." Well, you know, we will. But you look at last term, right? You remember the Greens? This is very much what they were saying at the start of last term. We'll be able to hold them to account. You know, I remember them saying, "Oh, we're not going to ask any Patsy questions in the house. We're going to use our questions." I mean, that lasted all of two minutes, and they're doing Patsies, right? You know, like <clears throat> you, you do wonder whether they will. You know, stand up uh, to labour on any issues, really, don't you? I think it, you have to ask fundamental question to Green Party supporters: is why are you in Parliament, and and are you there to try and bring about change and be consulted and be at, even though they're outside of cabinet, so not technically at the table, but at the table? Do you want to be in the, at the mix children's of table? At the, say. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really nice analogy, actually. At the children's table but still in the room, shall we say, if we're continuing that analogy on. Or do you want to sit in the opposition so you can bark exactly, criticism right. at them? And I think that's why you saw 85% of the um, Green Party supporters say, yeah, we want to be in the room with them and we want to be trying and to... And trying to achieve, get some wins, yeah, right? Because I think, yeah, achieve some of our goals. Yeah, and, and the rest of the Green MPs can very much then go out and still be vocal. And I think it's really important that they do and take that seriously. I also think that it's really important that the Green co-leaders make sure that when they disagree, they are loud, vocal about it. Because it's not. this isn't about just this 2020 election. This is planning for 2023, 2026, or others to come. That, that Labour doesn't need them this time, but they... They may in the next election or other elections to come. And it's about forming those bonds and forming those relationships. I just think there's, there's fascinating things. I also, when yeah, we were and sitting... I think <coughs> it makes perfect sense, right, for yeah. Labour to sign a cooperation agreement like this. Yeah, yeah. and when yeah. we were sitting and waiting and I was like, oh, we've been waiting for the Greens for about an hour. And then I was like, you need to check yourself. Because <laughs> yeah. this time last election we were waiting all day and didn't even know if they were coming. So yeah. um, I have to say it was a lot easier dealing with the Greens who told us what time they'd be coming down and what they'd be doing and... Yes, we didn't get a lot of information from those stand-ups, but at least they they stopped and chatted to us and didn't try and sneak in the back door. Um, So we didn't have to do all of that very labour-intensive staking out. Yeah, and even though they're not even sworn in yet, one of the the very first things they seem to have announced, um, I think, at the weekend was, hey, they're going to push, now that New Zealand First isn't here, they're going to push straight ahead with um, trying to get legal drug testing in place for music festivals this summer sort of um, you know, one of the very first things they've done. Yeah, I think it is risky business, though, for the Green Party to go into this cooperation agreement. I think just through the agreement, we saw the might of the Labour Party and the fact that, you know, here's, here's what we have to offer. It's, um, it's what we want to give you and nothing more, um, and um, take it or leave it. And um, I think that could set them up for some real sort of troubles at the next election if they don't play their cards right, if they're not vocal enough, if they're not outspoken enough. It's one thing to expect the other MPs to do that, but you, it's, it's difficult for them to do that when their co-leaders 
aren't you know leading it themselves and if they're having to speak out and against things that their co-leaders have signed up to and are nodding there in the background you know with with Ardern um, on and so it's it's a big ask to say yeah the other MPs can speak up on those things um, and it is all very well for them to say yes but we've got all of these um, understandings in the agreement that we can you know note our disagreements yeah. and so on and so forth and all of those things are very good in theory um, but in, in practical terms, it doesn't always end up that way. And we saw what happened with New Zealand First and we saw what happened with the Māori Party, um, those smaller parties, um, you know, bearing the brunt of, you know, dissatisfaction with the performance of a government. So we shall see, we shall see over the next three years. Did you want to add something before we flick topics? Oh, no, no, I... Um... It was just the, 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 the way, I, I don't know, that it was the satisfaction with it government that that with, re- New, Zealand <coughs> with, with New Zealand first it was almost it was almost the opposite it was the, the, the real satisfaction with, with it was with the labor dis- kind of no it was <coughs> the dissatisfaction from New Zealand first traditional supporters like the gun lobbyists and and others the dissatisfaction with the labor direction that lost New Zealand first those votes and they ended up going to act and I wouldn't even say national because it was such a bloodbath but um, they uh, yeah those New Zealand First supporters certainly didn't go to, uh, to to Labor. They went to ACT, and so and that was, I think, a lot to do with the dissatisfaction that those voters had with the government of which New Zealand First were a part. Right. Well, sh- shall we talk about how so we... being part of government didn't, do, didn't yeah, serve right. them well? Okay, I'm with yeah. you. So <laughs> shall we? Let's flick back and have about. a have a think about election night. Um, we were all in Auckland, but all at different locations. What were your big takeaways from election night and, and what was it like at each of the places you were at? Do you want to... Well, I think I was at the best election night uh, <laughs> event ever because I was obviously with National and it was a bloodbath. And so it was just, you know, fascinating um, to watch and seeing all of those blue seats flip red. Yeah, It was, was just... Big. A huge shocker and I think everybody was just standing there at the National Party HQ just with their jaws to the floor just being like what and just filling their mouths with as much alcohol as they could to be honest it was it was quite an evening yeah. well, I th- had people throwing back alcohol too but for a different reason and celebrating I think yeah. I've, I've never been at a winning party's function before and um, it was a very different vibe to um, election nights that I've covered in the past. I think what was um, what made things simple for I was at Labour, of, of course, and I think what made things simple is we had a we had an outcome reasonably early in the night and a very clean, clear cut outcome. So I think even just contrasting it to the election, uh, the US election coverage that we've all been glued to over the last 24 hours, not having that clear cut in the first few hours does make quite a big difference to the way that everything feels and the way that everything plays out. But I mean, some of those regional seats that have been blue forever, um, I just think that it was was really interesting. I mean, Jerry Brownlee losing his seat, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just huge and symbolic and, um, yeah, it, it, there, are, there were moments like that where you just think, ooh, ooh, that's not what people expected. And I think the fact that even that Labour could govern alone, um, you know, our polls were pretty, were very accurate, but it's just interesting that that's the way that it's 
fallen. Yeah, and I was with the the Greens, um, which was a real party atmosphere in, in Auckland. Um, and particularly a lot of focus that night was on Chloe Swarbrick in, in the um, Auckland Central electorate. And the first time up on the TV screens popped up and she was a, they only had a few hundred votes come in and she was, she had a tiny lead. And, but she held that lead the whole night as more and more votes came in. And so it was a real party atmosphere there. People have a great time. And sort of, so we have our earpieces in, so you're sort of listening to the, to the main show unfold, just listening to this catastrophe um, unfolding around the country for the National Party um, while being surrounded by people sort of, you know, partying for the Greens because they were over the 5% threshold. They'd done quite well. Yeah, it was, it was a fascinating election night. <clears throat> yeah. And it was their biggest result in years. Um, for the Green Party, wasn't it? And I think it w- what was interesting when you step back from it is that what the Greens did well is played up their relationship with Labour during the campaign and said, we're buddies, Labour's doing well, let's try and have some of that rub off on us. I wonder if if people go back and analyse New Zealand First campaign, whether they'd done more of that and said, hey, we... Yes, we held them to account, but look how much Labour was able to achieve with us by their side. And if they'd played that up more, we're a duo, we're a team, I wonder if that would have been a smarter way to campaign. So so the Greens, the whole campaign, was saying, hey, a vote for the Green Party is a vote for a Jacinda Ardern-led government. Mm. And you you look at Winston Peters and the way he ran his campaign, it was very much kind of a traditional New Zealand First Mm. campaign, ah, the National Party, ah, Labour, blah, 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 kind of putting the boot into both camps, Mm. you know, really setting yourself up as independent. And I do wonder whether he would have been better off tying himself more to the Labour Party, given it was, you know, very, very popular, and and, and more targeting, you know, national voters and say, look, a vote for national is a wasted vote. They're only going to be in opposition. Here you can really guarantee... you know, the New Zealand First Party will, you know, continue to work with Labour, but put the brakes on. I guess, <coughs> sorry, you go. He obviously did that, though, right, because he was saying, you know, we are the insurance that you need in this Labour-led government. But the problem is that he also kept, he, as he usually does, Winston Peters, he drowns that out with just being grumpy and stubborn and rude and cutting inter- media interviews short. And, and, and that always sort of over, you know, um, you know, just kind of, T- takes the focus away from a lot of the sort of um, uh, more sort of mature um, uh, campaign um, narratives that, that, you know, he, in terms of being a, an insurance for the government. And, and everybody just starts reporting on the fact that Winston Peters is stormed off or Winston Peters is being grumpy because he just allows that to sort of be the dominating fact I, because he provides that. And I think one of the things that he may have sort of had in his head from last time is that he is getting votes from national supporters and is hoping to get votes from Labour supporters and isn't wanting to alienate one side or another. So maybe that's why that was his thinking, that perhaps I um, can't play up my Labour side because it means I lose that national group of voters. But when the when the polls were coming in, you need to be able to be nimble and be like, oh, OK, right, this is how this is going to play out. Let's change our messaging. Let's get more in line and try and snaffle up another 3%, which is what he And you didn't hardly ever see any of his MPs with him other than Shane Jones maybe every now and then. Ron Mark was campaigning just for the candidate vote in his electorate, which was just bizarre. He demoted Jenny Marcroft for, you know, nobody really knew why, um, which, you know, would have caused internal tension 
um, you know, between some of those MPs. I know her and Tracy Martin were very close. That wouldn't have gone down well with them. It came out of left field as well, I think, um, for Jenny. And so, you know, just no coordination, it seemed. Um, just a really bad campaign run by New Zealand First. Yeah, and I think particularly when you've just been part of this government that has done one of the best, well, you know, top couple of countries um, in the world in terms of fighting or, you know, keeping COVID-19 out, keeping the population safe, not to try and play on that more and try mm. and capitalise on that more. And, and it may be out of Parliament, but, you know, I think we'll still be hearing a lot about Winston Peters um, over the coming year or two. Um, you've got the New Zealand First Foundation, got individuals there still with name suppression at the moment um, that, you know, is facing serious charges there. They'll be coming before the courts, no doubt, um, next year. And I, I think there's still ongoing things over that, um, you know, long-running superannuation court case as well that he's threatening to bring back to court. So probably not the last we've heard of Mr Peters, but the National Party campaign. Should we talk about that yeah. for a while? Because um, mm. I, I followed spent quite a lot of time on the campaign trail following um, Judith Collins uh, around the country. And one thing that really sticks in my mind is how often we went to events and people would kind of say, oh, this was very last minute. This was, you know, this was quite last minute that we've had to organise this. It did seem like they were kind of trying to piece things together, you know, as they went very last minute kind of stuff. And as a result of that, I think you started to see those big hiccups um, you know, sort of playing out on the on the campaign trail as well. Um, we had the um, the Ponsonby Road um, disastrous walkabout where they put their campaign team around to poses, members of the public. Uh, she toured a Ekatahuna tractor factory, which was like plastered with pornography all over the walls, and you know stuff like that that you kind of wouldn't expect <laughs> from a from <laughs> you a. You caught me off guard. From what a, did you just say? From a major. <laughs> political party, you wouldn't expect these kind of things to be unfolding. It seemed very kind of last minute And I think for all of us, we spent days with both of the big parties, and there was just contrast. Like, going out with Jacinda Ardern, yeah. I've covered politics for 15 years, and been, you know, several international um, campaigns as well, and just the throng of people around Jacinda Ardern. Like, at times, honestly, I didn't really love it. Like, you were literally hemmed in with people. And she just... People were so eager to get a selfie, to shake her hand, to reach out and touch her sleeve. And, you know, as the media, we're kind of there and in the mix of things. But it was pretty full on. And I think we all had a taste of that. Um, and in some days, it was a little bit more of a relief to go and spend the day with Judith Collins because at least you got had a little bit more personal space around you. I love so. that you said um, some people just wanted to reach out and touch her sleeve. Yeah, but it, like, yeah, like, <laughs> like she's some kind of messiah. Just, just if I but could it just literally, get a little sleeve. But it was like things that like reach their <laughs> hands in. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I, I tried to position, I found that if you could position yourself in between the DPS behind her you could kind of have your microphone there and then it meant you could kind of just move a little bit with the group of people but it's pretty like yeah. it's pretty intense and they pretty just, slow going eh? yeah just, really slow. yeah they just loved it yeah it was something else it was quite something to witness actually and just everywhere she went yeah and and you know there we did get a bit of um 
you know, I'd see people sort of commenting, oh, you're not giving, you know, the public, you're not giving the same attention to do to Collins. And I'm just like, mate, you cannot report on what is not there. Yeah. And on the same level. Um, you know, so uh, Judith Collins, um, certainly, you know, to the people that um, she, uh, you know, was with and saw, they were also very glad to see her. Yeah. She got lots of good remarks in terms of, and the one that always came through strongly for me was, I'm a strong woman and I love seeing another strong woman, you know, in that leadership role for National. Go mm. girl. Like there yeah. were a lot of people saying that, that sort of that strong persona that Judith Collins brings to that role. A lot of National Party supporters love that. Also, a lot of National Party members really did enjoy having her in that leadership role. Like all of the events that we went to um, and I'd speak to, I did a number of voxies with the members just to get a feel of, you know, how they think she was going. They were absolutely 100 percent behind her and I don't think that's only because you know I was part of the media and we were part of a campaign they speak um, honestly yeah. national party members and they love to see her in that position and they were absolutely riled up at um, those uh, within the party who had started to leak against Judith Collins and the party in those last few weeks and that was obviously when we saw that email being released to media um, which showed Denise Lee MP criticising Judith Collins in a call that she made on policy members hated that they did not like that at all so that was also very interesting and I think that's what played into you know what we saw now in, in recent weeks after the election with her not being rolled or not being challenged for that leadership role and I think that is also why we won't see that for for some time now um, there was a lot of hurt um, and pain within the caucus at so many uh, MPs getting the boot um, based on the bad you know, election result numbers, um, they were, you know, wounded and they were bleeding out and and nobody had any had has any tolerance for any sort of further um, upset um, chaos within the party. Surely Denise Lee knew that email was going to get leaked. Yeah. I don't, you, if you, you don't email every much. single one of your colleagues yeah. and put the boot into your boss... Surely, and, and, and you're a national party MP. If it, you if must know that's going to get leaked, right? But if you, you didn't know, you're either leaked or, you, or you're stupid. And some people are stupid, and I hate to say that, and I don't say that lightly, but that's what the move was, stupid, and if it was anything more than that, it was sinister. So she can choose which one she likes, it was stupid or it was sinister. Yeah, and I think if I'm someone is under an, an immense amount of pressure not to realise that that's going to be leaked out. You must have your your red blink you know, your red mist blinkers on if you can't see that that's going to come out. Red mist, blue blinkers. Yeah. yeah. Or stupid. Blue blue mist if <laughs> now, you like. Now, um what did you want to add? So the National Party they've announced that they're gonna have a review into um, what went so disastrously wrong for them in this campaign. Um, Peter Goodfellow, he's gonna organise that review. The last time they asked him to hold a review it was into the culture of the National Party to see if it was a safe place for women, and that review didn't actually speak to any of their female MPs. So this will be an, um, an interesting review into the campaign. Uh, not clear yet whether it will ever get made public. It probably depends on the results. Um, but also, the last week or two, Judith Collins repeatedly talking about overweight people needing to take more personal responsibility. I mean, it seemed to be the issue that she spoke the most about in the last week or two of the campaign. Just bizarre. Yeah, like I think that you get caught up in this, on this issue again and again and again. And I think there were and moments is, like these are your final sort of words to the public. Yeah, and and those are the moments that kind of show you just changed leaders, you just changed campaign chair, 
and it's those things that become obvious. You know, that that should not have been the message, that it should not have been talked about. And I think there will be also analysis of this whole idea of, of Crusher Collins and whether that should have been more dominant rather than the sort of sweet Collins that you know that we saw, we saw in some swing of those. Back at early yeah, on, swing into she was started off with the strong, and then she swung swung into sweet, and then back yeah. to strong. And I'm not talking about her as a as a personality. I'm saying the side that her team wanted to play up when they did when they were at events and things like that. It's a it's not a personal thing. It's almost a strategy thing. Yeah. So I do think that. Um, there were moments like that. It, it's fascinating. We probably have um, time for one quick final um, comment each before we have to go on. Benedict Collins has been furiously scribbling notes. I oh, feel uh, you need to need to say what you need to say. Oh, two things. One, I thought probably the best Judith was during the campaign was in those TV debates. She really yep. took it to yep. Justin Rudeau. Really was was feisty and good, but obviously that didn't um, translate into and votes. And, and quick, didn't really translate into votes on election day. Of course, we've got the specials coming back tomorrow, so it looks like National um, will probably lose Maureen Pugh and question marks over whether another MP might follow as well, so that they could be losing a, a colleague or two still to come. We'll find that out at um, 2 o'clock tomorrow as well as the final referendum results. Yeah, awesome. I agree with the debate stuff. Um, I thought Judith Collins was very strong in those debates, mainly in the... F- the first one was her strongest. Ardern obviously had to step it up and bring it harder in the second debate, which she did, and that kind of evened things out. And then where Judith Collins lost it on those debates was around sort of the substance. It was there, but it was there was always sort of asterisks next to it, really, to be honest for me. Um, I'm not going to say it was fact checks, but it was, yeah, anyway, so that's that. Um, also very, just for, for me briefly at the end, very good to be out on the campaign trail with the leaders because we're in here obviously with them on the daily and so just to see them with you know Joe Bloggs out on the street in Dunedin or wherever um, it's just a whole nother side to them and um, it's, and it was it, awesome and it's so great for t- TV as well because mm. we've got new pictures yeah, with fresh pictures, pictures every day of, of your leaders out meeting meeting people all those sort of interactions yeah. visiting yeah. Factories or stores, or it's nice out, that out they let public. us out every now and then, especially yeah, over yeah. COVID. We've felt like caged birds. Great, a little great bit. pictures every day. David yeah. Seymour, of course, hamming it up on the. Oh my gosh, we trail. didn't even speak about David Seymour. We might have to he save it for another podcast. Yeah. Just quickly, <laughs> yeah. buses on racetracks, jumping out of aeroplanes. Yeah, he uh, definitely uh, wins for the best photo ops, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Um, followed a little bit, quite reasonably closely by Jacinda Ardern with her mall visits, but. Jumping out of a plane, come on, that's got to be, he's got to win for that. Um, Let's leave it there. We'll save it for podcast for next week um, and get into it again. This was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available around this time each week on One News Online. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. See you guys next week.